Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. Through this podcast, we hope to challenge and equip you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus and in living and loving like Him. Before it ever entered the world, God had a plan to right what sin would wrong. That plan centered around the sending of His one and only Son. In and through Jesus, God revealed His design for our destiny, if we are willing to see, believe, and receive it. His plan has never been hidden, and in the person of Jesus, we find our example, our access, our hope, and our calling unveiled. Well, good morning, church. You feeling good? This room feels a little better than that size, so I'm going to go over here. Uh, Today is Palm Sunday. And, like, I know that there are a lot of you that didn't grow up in the church like I did, and, like, you're just wishing you were at the beach with some palm trees um, instead of uh, here. But we're glad you're here and believe that God wants to do something powerful. And maybe you don't understand why it's called Palm Sunday, because today is the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem and began the journey of the last week of his life. And on Sunday, they treat him like a king. They celebrate Jesus as if he is a king. And the, the story goes that Jesus is on the back of a donkey and he's riding into Jerusalem. And as he comes in, people are cheering and they're, they're yelling this word, Hosanna, and they're calling out to him. And what they're doing is they're laying palm branches across the path as the borrowed donkey that he rides in on enters the city and they give him a, a king's welcome. And it's interesting, the, the reason why he kind of comes in on Sunday like a king is because he's on the heels of, of one of the most miraculous things he had ever done. He had some friends named Mary and Martha, and they had a brother named Lazarus, and he had been really, really sick, and they had tried to get word to Jesus that he was sick and was going to die, and when Jesus gets there, they look at him and say, Jesus, you're too late. They fail to realize that Jesus is always on time. I'm going back over here now because it's nice. And so Jesus, he says, like, he's been, Lazarus has been in the, in the grave for, like, for several days now. By now, his body stinks, and Jesus just calls his name and says, Lazarus, come out of the grave. And in that moment, Jesus raises Lazarus, a man who had been dead for days, raises him back to life, and he, he steps out as if he had never even been sick. And, like, you, you raise a dead dude, and people, people start to pay attention. And so the, the rumor that Jesus had, that had just, that the news of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead begins to spread. And so now people kind of are, are having this opinion of him. And so on Sunday, as he rides into Jerusalem, they give him a king's welcome. And they celebrate him as if he is a king, laying the palm branches across the path. And as he rides in on that donkey, the disciples had to be thinking in that moment, like, this is what I'm talking about. Like, this is what we've been waiting for, Jesus. Like, it's about to get good. Like, we've been waiting for this whole thing to kind of take off, and we've laid everything aside to follow Jesus, and now, like, everything that we thought was going to happen is going to happen. And they don't know in that moment that it would just be a matter of days before it would all go sideways and things would dramatically shift. Because as, as powerful as Sunday was, Friday was coming. And before we get there, Jesus had walked through that week and the crazy things had happened. But then Thursday night came. And it came time for the entire nation of Israel to celebrate a feast called Passover. And maybe you don't remember what that was about. It goes back to Moses. 
When Moses was called by God to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and all these things had been happening to try to convince Pharaoh to let his people go, and the last straw was going to be an angel of death was going to come through all of the nation and take the firstborn child, and the only way to escape death was to slaughter a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it over the doorframe of your home, and then the angel of death would pass over you. And that's exactly what happened on that day. Whoever slaughtered the lamb and whoever put the blood of the lamb over their household would escape the angel of death. Do you see God was pointing to something even from the beginning? Y'all got to wake up. Come on. This is good stuff. It's going to get better. Or perhaps worse. So Jesus goes into this moment with his disciples and he has this feast remembering that day. And remember we talked about last week. It's in that moment that he washes the disciples' feet. Later on that evening... As they're having this moment, they're having this feast, I think they thought, man, this is, this is as good as it gets, man. We're having this meal together, and Jesus is just being treated like a king, and all these powerful things are happening, but Jesus knows better. Jesus knows that it's only a matter of time before what he really came to do was going to be fulfilled. And in that moment, later on in that evening, he goes into this place called the Garden of Gethsemane, and in that moment, Jesus begins to feel the weight of, of what's coming. That the reason why he really had come, that yeah, he came to show us God's standard, but that's not all he came to do. And the rest of what he came to do was about to unfold. And then there comes this moment where Judas, one of the ones that he had poured into all this time, comes up and he kisses him on the cheek because that was the sign that Judas had arranged with the right people to indicate that Jesus was the one and they arrest him. And now all of a sudden, this week that started off so good, was starting to take a turn. And Jesus would spend that night going through several really illegal trials, one after another, after another, after another. And they finally get to the place where they just decide, hey, let's just beat him for his crimes. And they took Jesus into a courtyard and, and they bent him over a rock. And they had a, a leather whip. And the tips of that leather whip was bone was sewn into the tips. And there they gave him a lashing. They hit him 39 times because they believed that 40 would kill a man. And so only 39. And what they would do is they would take that whip and they would slam it down into the top of his shoulders, the bone digging into his flesh, and then jerk the whip just with the bone just ripping down the flesh of Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, they decided that this Jesus, who just a few days ago was celebrated as a king, needed to be killed like a criminal. And as Friday unfolds, this is what begins to happen. Matthew records it in chapter 27, starting with verse 31. It says, after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put, it on his, own, put his own clothes on him. Then they led, led him away to, be, to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross because at this point, Jesus was just too weak. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. 
In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Then at about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma shabachthani, which is Aramaic and means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And now many standing around observing this moment believed they had just crucified a criminal. As far as the Roman government was concerned, that's what they had done. Because you see, they were the only ones that had power to carry out this order. Crucifixion was a terrible way to die. And it had been developed by the Roman government as a way to kind of keep power. Rome at the time was, was the, the strongest power in all of the globe. And they had taken over the, the, the nation of Israel and they had put in a governor there by the name of Pilate. And Pilate got convinced that, that Jesus maybe was, and there's some people that even believe this to this day, that Jesus was, was some radical Jewish rabbi who was just determined to raise up a group and, and take over the throne of Israel, and which would be a threat to Rome. And if it was going to be a threat to Caesar, then he had to die. And the only way to die and kill a threat to the Roman Empire was to crucify them. You're put out there on display. And the way you would die is eventually you would just suffocate. They'd put you on the cross And they would stretch you out so much that you could barely get breath into your lungs. And so you would have to push yourself up somehow just to get air into your lungs. And the way you would eventually die is your body would become so weak from hanging on the cross that you would have no more energy to push yourself up and get air into your lungs. So eventually on that cross, you would suffocate. That's why maybe you've heard it said at times, if they were taking a little bit too long to die, they would break the prisoner's legs. And that way, speeding up the process a little bit. Because with your legs broken, you wouldn't have no way to force yourself up and get air into your lungs. On Sunday, they welcome him as a king. They put palm branches at his feet. And now they've driven nails into his hands and feet. And they watch him die. And now everybody around is, is, is trying to process th- this. And and. There were many that believed that he was just another criminal that was crucified. This was not foreign for the, for the citizens of Rome to, to walk by this place and see criminals hanging there. But now as they walked by this time, maybe there was a crowd that was, that was a little bit larger than normal. And for many, and maybe for some, even the room, that's what you believe just happened. They just crucified a criminal. That Jesus was this crazy radical that said the wrong things about the wrong people and it got him killed. But there was a group there that didn't think they just crucified a criminal. They were convinced they executed a heretic. And those were the people that really were the driving force behind getting Jesus to the cross. 
It wasn't the Roman government. The Roman government was so powerful. Even, even Jesus and all that he was doing at that time was, was really no threat to Rome. Roman was the, the most powerful force in all of the world. And you think some carpenter's son that said a few things and maybe did some magic tricks and had a few followers was a threat to Rome? No. And if you go back and you read, even Pilate, the governor of Rome, had tried to wash his hands of the whole thing. He didn't see any reason to crucify this guy, but there was such an uproar and it was because there was a group of people that had convinced that they were executing a heretic, somebody who was blaspheming and saying all these crazy things about God. You want to know who the real people were that put him on the cross? The religious. It was the people that were controlling the religious system. It was the people. Do you remember I told you last week that, that what God had started with Abraham, where Abraham had this covenant with God, and everything that had happened in the life of Abraham and throughout the Old Testament and throughout the prophets, all that was to point to Jesus. That's why God started that whole thing. You want to know the point of the Old Testament? The point of the Old Testament was to point to Jesus. But it had been hijacked by the religious people. And it was no longer an arrow pointing to Jesus. It was a system that was keeping people from God. And so much of what Jesus did was to push the envelope of the religious system to undo what religion was doing. And you got to know, like, that ticked some people off. It threatened their ability to control people. And that's what religion ultimately does. Religion tries to control people. You with me? Say amen. And it was these people... That would, be, that would lead the charge to make sure Jesus would die. And it was one thing for Jesus to kind of buck against their system. It was one thing to call them hypocrites. It was one thing to kind of point out all the things they were doing wrong. But then Jesus, it wasn't really what Jesus said, did that really drove them crazy. It was what Jesus said. Especially about what Jesus said about himself that would cause them to revolt and be determined to see Jesus die. Go back into Matthew, chapter 26, pick up with verse 3. It says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. So, like, if you, if you ever wondered, like, how did Jesus end up on the cross? How does a guy go from on, on Sunday being celebrated as a king to being nailed to a cross just a few days later? I'm about to show you. Because it was, again, it was one thing that Jesus called him out. It was one thing that he would, he would storm the temple and turn over their tables and, 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 and fight against all the things that they were doing to keep people from God. But Jesus would say something about himself that for the religious people would be the final straw. It would be too much. See, in one of these trials that Jesus went through from Thursday night between the time of the, of the Last Supper with the disciples and going to the cross is recorded in Matthew 26. Go with me, Matthew 26, pick up with verse 59. It says, The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Like they were trying to get him. Like they were, they, do you see, they were, they were determined to make sure that Jesus died. Verse 63, 
The high priest said to him, Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, you would think that, like, maybe they're trying to actually figure out the truth about Jesus, but they're, they're trying to push him to say something very specific about himself so they can use it against him. Verse 64, you have said so. Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest flips his grits. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. Why do you think, uh, what do you think? He is worthy of death. And then if you move into chapter 27, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. And then that started the train that led to the cross. See, Jesus, it, it was one thing to do miracles. It was one thing to push against the system. But it was a whole nother issue for a man to claim he was God if he wasn't. What pushed him over the edge was, hey, this Jesus is making himself equal with God. He's calling himself God. And for the religious people, that wasn't enough, and it shouldn't have been enough. Because if he claimed to be God and he wasn't God, then there would be a problem. But he was. See, they didn't, they didn't crucify a criminal. They didn't execute a heretic. They killed a holy God. See, all along, Jesus had been saying this about himself. This wasn't the first place. Jesus was, had been saying from the very beginning, hey, I'm the one who's come. Go back to Luke. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 22. It says, and he, Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. In other words, Jesus predicted exactly how this thing would unfold all throughout his ministry. And all throughout his ministry, he's, he would point to the fact of who he really was. That he would say things like, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you've seen him. All throughout the, the, the Jesus ministry, he was pointing to the reality that he was and is God. And see, that for, for the religious people, they couldn't see that. They couldn't believe that. And that's what broke the straw. That was what pushed them over the edge. That was what made them determine more than ever to take him to the cross. And if he wasn't God, then they were right. But also if he wasn't God, then nothing he did mattered. If Jesus wasn't God, nothing he did mattered. And that's where people begin to kind of shift on this whole Jesus thing. I meet people all the time and say, you know what, I believe Jesus was a, was a good man. I believe Jesus had a lot of nice things to say. I believe that, that Jesus was a nice prophet that had some, some really cool ways for us to live, but, but I don't believe he was God. I don't believe, if, because I don't believe he was God, I don't believe really his life and death really matter all that much. But, but here's the problem. If Jesus wasn't everything he said he was, then he was crazy. 
C.S. Lewis, I believe, would say he was either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Because he, he couldn't be just a good man. Because if he, if he wasn't everything he said he was, then he was a liar and he was crazy. And, and we have this picture in our mind with Jesus of, of, of like this, this mid-century hippie walking around with blonde hair and blue eyes speaking in an English accent. You know Jesus didn't look like that. Yeah, we all grew up in churches with some picture of some Shakespearean actor. It was not Jesus. Have you seen people from the Middle East? Didn't look nothing like that. Either Jesus was everything he said he was or he was nothing. And I just happen to believe he was everything he said he was. That he was and is God. And everything about his life point to it. Did you know that there are over 60 prophecies in the Old Testament about what the Messiah would be and look like and do? That years before Jesus ever walked this planet, that God sent these images and these prophecies to help us see who he is. And did you know that Jesus is the only person ever alive to meet all 60 of those? In Jesus, he fulfilled all, there's 60 plus prophecies in the Old Testament about when the Messiah would be born and where he would be born and everything that he would do. Did you know that the probability of one man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies is one in 100 quadrillion? I'm not good at math, but that's a lot. <laughs> like you got a better chance of winning the lottery like 50,000 times than that happening. I totally just made that number up, but it's something like that. Like... Like everything that Jesus did was pointing to who he was. And you say, Matt, why, why is this so important? Let me tell you why this is so important. Because if Jesus wasn't God, then Jesus sinned. If Je because God is the only one capable of being completely immune to sin. You're not and I'm not. I am a sinner because I'm human. So are you. And scripture says that the wages of sin is death. That from the beginning in the garden, God said, if you choose to obey me, like the, the consequence will be death. And God is not a liar. That the only punishment for sin is death. And if Jesus was not God, then he was just a man, then he had sin. And when he died on the cross, he was just being punished for his own sin. If, he wasn't perf if his life wasn't perfect, then his death was pointless. Because God can't accomplish what he desired to accomplish in the life of Jesus. See, I told you last week there's this standard that God has set for us, and he showed us that in Jesus. But the problem is there's something that stands in the way of our ability to ever live within that standard, and it's called sin. And if we're going to live in the standard, we have to be separated from the sin. And there's nothing that you or I can do to separate ourselves from the sin. So Jesus did it for us. Amen. See, he was our standard, but he was also our substitute. See, what just happened on the cross was everything necessary for your sin and my sin to be dealt with so that we could live within God's standard and so that we could live in relationship with him. And so what Jesus said, hey, the death that you deserve for the sins that you have, I'm going to die it for you. I'm going to take your, you deserve to die for the sin you've committed. And the only thing that's going to satisfy that sin is death. 
And God loved you and me so much. He said, instead of you dying for your sin, I'm going to come and do it for you. I'm going to come and do it for you. And that moment that we just read about where Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've ever wondered what's happening in that moment, this is what I truly believe is happening. In that moment, Jesus gets the entire sin of all of humanity dumped on him so that he can be punished for it instead of us. And so in that moment, for the very first time in Jesus' whole life, because he's perfect, because he's God, he had never known what it was like to be separated from the Heavenly Father because of sin. And there on the tree, God plucks the sin of your life and of my life, and he dumps it on Jesus right before he dies so that he can be the sacrifice to separate me and you from our sin so that we can live in relationship with him. criminal wasn't crucified. A heretic wasn't executed. The Holy Lamb of God, who was our standard, but was also our substitute, and that moment became the sacrifice necessary to buy you back. And now, what's made possible in our lives is limitless. And now, in the moment, everybody around there, again, they're, they're trying to make sense of this. This all happens so fast. Even the disciples, the, the same guys that, that Jesus had just hung out with that Thursday night before and shared this awesome meal with and had their feet washed by Jesus, they all scattered. And they watched all this from a distance. And it would take days and maybe even years for all this to settle into them and for them to make sense of what just happened. Even Peter. Oh, Peter. He had already done exactly what Jesus said he would do. He had already denied him three times. And from a distance, he watches this. But later on, you can see the reality of what just happened sinks deep in his spirit as he writes this letter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He gets it right. He explains exactly what happened. He says, he, Jesus, committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed he took your sin so you could be separated from it he died your death so that you could live And he didn't wait for you to choose it he didn't wait for you to agree with it he didn't wait for you to believe in him And the good news is, like, this is the only way you can be made right. Like, you can't fix it. The thing that separates you from the God who created you, you cannot fix it yourself. You can never be good enough. You can never be generous enough. You can never do enough. You can't come to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't listen to enough Christian music. Like, you you can never do, you can't jump through enough hoops. You can't follow enough religious rules to ever get it right. I love how Paul writes it in Romans 5. He says, you see, 
at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. I love verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Christ went to the cross knowing everything you would ever do. And he went anyway. Knowing that many of you, many of us, would, would throw his, his grace in his face so often. And he died, he died for the sins you committed yesterday. And he died for the sins you're going to commit tomorrow. Amen. He died for you. And now the ramifications for that, like you need to know, like, like you may not be all the things you think you should be. You may not be who you want to be. But if you are in Jesus, if you've accepted his, his sacrifice, you're not who you used to be. And you don't have to be tethered and weighed down by all those things that you once had. Like I have done some stupid stuff in my life. I am not worthy to live in relationship with God. And I'm glad he didn't wait for me to be, to do what was necessary. You know what? I am worthy. And so are you. You know why? Because he says you are. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the innocent was found guilty so that the guilty could be found innocent. And so, believer, you need to know that. You need to live in that. You need to walk in that joy. If you've accepted what he has done on the cross for you, then stop carrying the guilt. Stop carrying the shame. Stop looking backwards. Stop looking in the mirror and seeing an addict. Stop looking in the mirror and seeing somebody who's broken. Look in the mirror and see a forgiven child of God who's been purchased by the blood of Jesus and walk in that freedom and live in victory. Because that's what's available to you. And in that moment, like God has done, I told you, everything that God had been doing was pointing to this that was coming. Even, even the religious system in that place that had been convoluted and all torn up, God had used to point to him, going back to the blood of the lamb in the very beginning. See, this time it wasn't an earthly broken lamb to be a temporary sacrifice. It was the perfect lamb of God who shed his blood. And when the blood covers, death is gone. But even in that moment, like, there used to be this place that they worshipped called, during Moses' day, when it was portable, called the tabernacle. And they would set it up, and then it became the temple. And it was the, the same general arrangement. And in the temple, there was a place called the holy place, and then the most holy place. And you've maybe heard talk about this before. In the the most holy place represented the full presence of God, like the unbridled presence of God, where, where God actually would reside. And it was so holy because he was holy. And, and unholy and holy cannot, cannot coexist. And there used to be this ritual where, where the, the high priest 
on one day a year, the Day of Atonement, could go into the Holy of Holies and he would go in there to make a sacrifice of blood to atone for the sins of the people. And so he had to go through this ritual. He would step into the holy place and he would go through this ceremonial ritual that God said, hey, before you can step into my presence, you've got to be made clean. And he would go through this sequence of things in order to be clean enough to step into the most holy place. On this one day a year, And they would even put bells along the bottom of his robe and so they could hear him moving around in there. And they would physically tie a rope to him so that if he went in there, and number one, if he had taken a misstep in preparing himself to be clean, to step into the holy of holies, God would strike him dead because you had to be clean. Unholy and holy cannot coexist. Or he would just have a heart attack. They had to pull him out. And one day a year, he would go in there to shed blood for the atonement of sins. If you go back into that story, on the day that Jesus died, the moment he gave up his breath and said, it is finished, says the earth shook. And I can only imagine the faces of the religious people who put him there in that temple as they watched the veil that contained the holiness of God was torn from top to bottom. And God was saying, It's done. The sacrifice necessary to separate humanity from their sin for them to live in intimacy with me has now been paid. And no longer will this place be be confined. No longer will it be just one person that can step into my presence one day a year. Now the price has been paid for all of humanity. Come on in. Come on in. Come on in. Come on in. Like, I have made you worthy. I have made you holy. The thing that stood in the way, what separated you from me has now been done. The standard has become the substitute, and the sacrifice has been made, and the sin that kept you away has been pawed and died for. Now, if you'll just accept it and believe in it, you can live in the power of intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. Now, the story's not over, but we'll get there next week. But for now, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment. I want to talk first to the believers in the room. Has this story lost its edge in your spirit? You know, those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a while, Palm Sunday became this place where we just have a pageant and the kids sing and we throw palm benches around and it, and it just loses its meaning. And today what I want you to do is I want you to awaken to the reality of what has just happened. Familiarity can sometimes cause things just to lose their beauty. And today I want you to wake back up to the reality that you are forgiven and that you are free. And that means, you know what? Stop walking in worry. Stop walking without joy. Stop acting like you don't have something that God says you have. Stop walking around with your head down and a sad face on and be renewed in the reality that if God never did another thing for you, what he did on the cross was enough. Reawaken to the beauty of the gospel. And maybe as we're worshiping in just a minute, you just need to worship with everything you've got out of gratitude for the reality that his blood has set you free. For the people that have not chosen that yet, maybe all along you've kind of just been thinking, oh, Jesus was just some criminal they killed and some heretic they executed. Like, and today you realize, no, 
He was my substitute. He was the sacrifice necessary to separate me from my sin. All you have to do, you don't need to pray some regurgitated prayer from some preacher. You just need to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. You need to acknowledge that sacrifice and thank him that he died for you. Just acknowledge that, yes, Jesus, you died for me and I accept your sacrifice. And salvation is yours. If that's you and you're praying that, we want to help you. If you would grab that card before you leave that's in the front of your seat, the welcome card you heard about earlier. It'll say on there today, I accepted Jesus. Will you just check that? Take it by the welcome table. We just want to put some resources in your hand because this is just the beginning of a powerful journey with Jesus. Whatever you need to do, we just want to give you the space to do it. As we worship and as we pray, would you just express your gratitude to him and acknowledge the beauty. Father, thank you that you chose to not leave us sinful and separated that you send the substitute to be the sacrifice to buy us out of our sin, to pay the debt that we owed, and now we have life. And God, for those of us who have let this just become routine and normal and maybe even insignificant, forgive us, and may we be reawakened to its beauty today. And God, for those who have never made that decision, God, I pray that you would just move on their spirits today to choose you, to acknowledge you, to believe what you did for them. And God, as we worship you, I pray that you would just move throughout this room and may we just cry out to you in gratitude for all that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church Podcast. To stay connected with what's happening at Vintage, download the Vintage Church app to access sermon notes, events, devotionals, previous podcasts, and discover ways to get connected in community. We hope you join us again soon.